We're going to be in the book of Romans this morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up to the book of Romans. We're going to mainly be in chapter 2. We're going to kind of go back and do a quick review of chapters 1 through 4. If you don't have a Bible this morning, we'd love for you to have a Bible. You can just raise your hand. Somebody will be coming down the aisles. They'd be happy to place one in, inside of your hands. But for those of you that haven't been here, we are studying this letter that was written by Paul uh, to a specific group of people in the, in the city of Rome. Uh, it's, a, it's a letter that's unique. It's a letter that was, has, God has powerfully used uh, all throughout time, whether we're talking about Augustine or even moving up into time, like a guy like Luther, and even into our time period, a little bit closer to it, a guy like Karl Barth, who, who in many ways, whether you agree or disagree with him theologically, the, the letter to the, to the Romans has been pivotal in shaping the church. Now, what I tried to do as we've been looking at this particular letter is to lay out for us kind of a little idea, an underpinning, these things that we can kind of hang some hooks on so that we can understand it. So one of the questions that we asked when we looked towards the end of the book of Romans is this particular question, which is, are we listening to the correct song? Now, here's all we meant by it. We read the Bible and we understand that the world was created by God. And when he created it, it was, in fact, this is the way it's said in chapter one, good even to the point by the time we get to the end of chapter one, when humanity, God's chief creation was created, he said it was very good. There was a rhythm, there was a melody to how this universe operated. Everything was in perfection. But then we know in this story that sin entered into it. And when sin entered into it, suddenly we began to get a random chaotic rhythm. We begin to kind of have this sour melodic tone as everybody begins to kind of do their own thing all of humanity was designed by God to worship him and know him and make much of his name. But we know this from the book of Romans, especially in Romans 1.25. Humanity had this like audacity to exchange the truth of God for a lie. When they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, everything from the smallest thing to the largest thing in the entire universe went out of whack. So when we talk about this world and where Paul's trying to write into it, is that he's calling us back to this original intent for why God created humanity, why he's doing what he's doing in the world. And he's specifically, I think, calling us back to what Paul talks about in Romans 1.5, that he's bringing a good news, a gospel to bear upon the world, where humanity now, by faith, can produce an obedience that makes much of God. That's why we were created. Now, what we did then is we moved to this idea about this idea of a story, and we asked the question, are we living the correct story? Now, all we meant by that is, is that there's one true story. That's God's story that's found inside of God's word. That's why we have our Bibles open today. That is the only true story that we can live our lives by, that we can understand why God created the world. Now, the problem was, is that when humanity sinned, is that it threw everything off kilter in the way that God designed things. We know that a story has things like a setting. It has things like a theme. It has characters. It has it has different aspects of confrontation. It has different aspects then of even resolution. But in this, when we talk about this story, humanity had the audacity, and this is what Paul's going to argue, had the audacity to remove God as the main character and place ourselves in as the main character. And the moment humanity became the main character in a story that he was never designed to be the main character, Everything then, I would say this way, the theme began to be about me making a name for myself. And we even see that like in Genesis 11, that when we come to Babel, all of humanity was making a name for themselves. I would put it this way. All of humanity begins to have a dream, but the dream has nothing to do with God. It has to do with 
me? The third question then that we asked based upon kind of studying through the books, and especially when we looked at the beginning more of, of, of the book of Romans, is we looked at this idea of writing the world. God is writing the world. And the question we asked is, is are we writing the world God's way? Now, the thing about it is, is that the moment that you put yourself as the main character, you automatically begin to assert this idea that I know how to write my world. And I would say this, every one of us, including me, we should be asking the question, God, how are you writing the world? And how do we join you? But instead of doing that, we have this wrong thinking that somehow we can go off on our own and we can write our world. And we know this, that every time we've tried to write the world, it's been disastrous. We do it in all kinds of different ways. We have in the back of our heads that we can write our children. Isn't that a funny concept? We think we can write our children as if somehow we have the power and the capacity to decide the outcome of our children. You cannot write your children. You can be faithful in your parenting, but you can't write kids. We think we can write culture. So we think in the back of our head is, oh, I know what we'll do. We'll vote for the right person. We know this though. Even if you get the person in office, the world just becomes what? More chaotic. Now, I'm not trying to be fatalistic. What I'm trying to get to is, is there's only one way to write the world, and that is God's way. Now, in that, we start to see then is that everybody is trying to write the world, whether we're talking about Hitler, who is the most, one of the more grotesque people that ever tried to write the world with a concept of Aryanism and taking out other races and replacing it with this one true race, which is grotesque even to the well-minded kind of a guy like a Gandhi who, who sought through civil through, to disobedience to, to come in and to cause change within the world, unless we're writing the world the way that God's called us to write the world, we're gonna mess it up. Now what that then means is, let me put it this way, <coughs> generally within the back of our head, we get a dream. In other words, maybe it is that I want safety, I want comfort, I want pleasure, I want financial kind of means, I want political we then set off in that and we begin to go after that reality, making a name for ourselves by those particular realities. All the while, God is the only way that can, one that can provide those for us. And in the back, what starts to happen is, is our world, we begin to live as if we can control the world. Let me just say this, all of you that might be seniors in here, you're about ready to go to graduation in May. And they're gonna tell you, you're the captain of your ship. Let me just say this. You, if you become the captain of your ship, you will wreck your ship, if not sooner, definitely later. The only captain of the ship is King Jesus. And this is what Paul is writing into when we think about this. If Jesus is truly the king, if he's truly the one that's above all things, then we can make our lives about him. We can allow him by faith, through trust, through surrender, through making our allegiance to him. This is the way we define faith, by coming in that way and saying, Jesus, we cannot take the wheel. Jesus, you take the wheel. It's this reality in which Paul is saying, this is the way we're called to live. Now in these chapters one through four, he's laying it out there and he's trying to bring us to a particular point because this is exactly what was going on inside of these churches. Now there's two specific groups of people as you, we've been studying this letter together that we've seen. We've seen both the Jews and we've seen the Greeks, maybe the Gentiles is another word that we might have for it. 
How were the Jews, this is the question, how were the Jews in light of all these particular questions that we're asking that are up on this particular screen, how were they trying to right the world? Well, we know this, that at the time of the Babylonian exile, when you read the Old Testament, there were foreigners that were oppressing and, and causing Israel to be downtrodden. And, and even in this, to this point, we read within the, the Bible this idea that Gentiles had come in and they had sacked Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple. They enslaved the people. They were inside of just extreme poverty. The poverty was so great that they were mocked due to it. They thought in the back of their head, if we could just get back to our homeland, everything is going to be okay. But the problem is, by the time they got back to their homeland, the Romans were in charge, and they were now slaves in their own particular land. Now, here's what they thought. In the back of their head, they thought that the way in which we're going to solve things, the way that we're going to get our country back, the way that we're going to be the people God intended us to be, is if we can just keep the law good enough. If we can just somehow in this find a way to, for God to look down upon us and see us worthy because we've kept the law in such a way that he'll restore to us the land, he'll drive out the Romans, everything is going to be good again. Which, by the way, any of you that start to think that somehow if we're just good enough and we just return things in the nation of the United States that God in some way is going to give us our nation back, you have not been reading the Bible. God's not about that. God operates in a completely different way. You don't bargain with God. You don't try in any kind of a way to try to become worthy of him. You don't in any way come at this from a, this idea that if we just do one thing, it'll be a natural kind of corrective to our unfaithfulness. And if we just do these certain things, then God is going to now come back and bless our land. That ship had sailed long ago. Jesus was sent as the Messiah. Their only hope was not a return to their land. Their only hope was their Messiah. And the Jewish people rejected him. And Paul's writing into this Jewish group of people, and he's saying this to them. Your Messiah has come. You missed him. Don't try to go back into the law again because the law is no longer in the way in which God is operating. He is operating from the standpoint of King Jesus and Messiah. All the law pointed to him. Everything was fulfilled in him. You can stop trying to earn my favor. You can stop trying in any way to be worthy. Jesus Christ has come. He is worthy. Place your faith, your trust, your surrender, your allegiance to him. Stop. Instead, what did they do? They began to think that they were all that. Now, here's what Jews saw. Now, we're going to pick on Gentiles here in a second. What Jews saw was this, is that we somehow, by keeping the law, are better than you. And then not only that, but if you really want to be a great follower of King Jesus, you need to come follow him how we're following him by fulfilling the law. That's what it meant by law of works is that you need to come and you need to join us in the fulfillment of the law. And this became their boast. See, we're worthy, to which Paul says, are you kidding me? The law was never meant to show you that you're worthy. Actually, the law shows you that you're what? Unworthy. All of us sitting in this room, let me just say this. We are completely unworthy. 
Everything that God gives us is by his grace and his grace alone. So how did they then see others? Well, the Gentiles, or here's another name for the Gentiles that was kicked around at the time, dogs, were seen as the Greeks that Paul's talking about, were seen as the, even the place that Paul's trying to get, the Spaniards. The way the Jews viewed the world was there was Jews and there was Gentiles, and that was it. And in order to follow King Jesus, you need to become like me to do that. Now be careful. Before you castigate the Jews, just understand this. We still do this in the church today. Now what that created, though, was an in-group and an out-group. In other words, if you come join my group, you're the in-group. But if you don't choose to join my group, then you become the out-group. You think it's just in high school? I hate to tell you this. It's all throughout life. To which any time this begins to happen, let me just say this. Any time we begin to separate ourselves into two groups when one group thinks that they're better than another is we start to have comparison, we start to have competition, which at the end of the day, it robs a church of any joy that it could ever have because it's either gonna discourage you that you're not the in-group or it's gonna begin to make you proud because you are the, you're the excuse me, discourage you because you're the out-group or make you proud because you're the in-group. That's not, Paul saying, how we define each other. That's not how God sees his church. So what about the Greeks? Well, the Greeks were a unique bunch. The Greeks, the way I would put it, were the refined class. They were the ones who, if there was such a thing as an English accent at the time, would have had an English accent the way that they talked. They were the refined group of people. The way they looked at the world is there was Greeks, and we're going to see this in 14 and 15, in which they laud freedom, they laud liberty, they laud wisdom. We see that kind of in, in 1 Corinthians 1. In the back of their head, you need to follow the way I do things, and the way they would then boast is they would boast in the way that they thought through things and their freedom. They would flaunt their freedom, and if you've never seen this inside of the church, bring up something like drinking, and you will find boasting, where some people it's like, well, I drink, you know, another, I don't, as if somehow that defines who we are in Jesus. They begin to see themselves culturally superior. Now imagine this for a second. Inside of this church was one group of people called the Jews who saw themselves as culturally superior and another group called the Greeks who saw themselves as culturally superior. Now you start to put them together inside of one group and say, play nice, please. In fact, the way that the Greeks saw it is they saw themselves and everyone else as barbarians. It comes from this Greek word barbar, which means that's how they would speak, bar, 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 bar. They would look at the Jews and call them barbarians. They looked at the Spaniards and called them barbarians. Now, how in the world is Paul ever going to land in Rome and go to the Spaniards when the Jews saw them as Gentiles and the Greeks saw them as now barbarians? He's saying, you have missed the gospel. Is there somehow an in-group that's the Greek group that practices freedom? Is that your boast? And then there's the out-group, which is everyone else. To which Paul comes in and lands this gospel in Romans 1, and this is what's so powerful about it. The gospel is not about a group of people by which they define themselves, whether Jew or Greek. The gospel instead is about Christ Jesus, 
The gospel is the, the good news of which now Jesus, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, is coming, and he's developing his kingdom. It's a kingdom that's been foretold by the prophets from long ago, the holy scriptures foretelling that this king would come one day. It's concerning the son who is descended. He was, a, he was a descendant of David, meaning he's not only the king of just one particular area, watch this, but he was declared to be son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead in Jesus Christ our Lord. In other words, he's not just king of the Jews. He's king of everyone. The good news is not how we get saved. The good news is that Jesus is king. He is in control of all things. He sits enthroned at the right hand of the Father. We now as followers of his, let me just say this. It might get rough, it might get rocky, we may not like the way things get, but never forget this. Jesus is Messiah, he is Aesu, and he is Lord, he is Kurios, he is King of Kings. That is our Savior. He announces it into this. Now think about this for a second. Paul says it's not about being a Jew and it's not about being a Greek. There's something that's so much bigger going on here. It's no longer that way of defining this. In other words, you're not a Jew first and then a Christian. You're not a, a Greek first and then a Christian. You're not a European and then a Christian. You're not an American and then a Christian. You are a Christian first because those who have come and bent their knee before the king and trusted him and surrendered him and have come to him now of allegiance to him understands that it's not about my titles of who I might be in this world. Everything is being readjusted by the king. I am defined by King Jesus. This is what Paul speaking into this group of people. He's wanting them to understand who you are. I know maybe over the last few weeks I was speaking, you're like, dude, quit saying who I am. No! We can never forget who we are. We are followers of Jesus, a part of the greatest kingdom ever that is no longer defined by national barriers. It is no longer defined by kings and kingdoms and thrones and presidents and senates and representatives. I promise you that one day Jesus Christ is coming back and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. This whole thing is moving that direction. King Jesus wins. And this is what Paul wants them to know. And it's a message for everybody. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this good news. He says, it's because it's the power of God for salvation. For, for who? Look at that word. To Everyone. Here's what it means in Greek. Everyone. It's a message for those that believe, that come and trust the king, that surrender to him, that make allegiance to him. It is given by grace, but look this. It's given to the Jew and to the who? Greek. What's he saying? Now just think with me for a second. That means the gospel, when we say it's for everybody, we mean that the gospel is for soccer moms and meth moms. That means when we say the gospel is for everyone, it's for helicopter dads and deadbeat dads. That means when we say the gospel is for everyone, it's for Mennonites and Klansmen. 
When we say the gospel is for everyone, it's for Jews and Palestinians. When we say the gospel is for everyone, it's male and female. When we say the gospel is for everyone, it's the abled and disabled. When we say the gospel is for everyone, it's for everyone that is black, brown, yellow, red, white, and every tint and hue in between. This message, Paul says, is no longer about national identity. It's about something else, King Jesus. He says, that's why I'm not ashamed. It's the greatest message of all time. I mean, when's the last time you thought about it? We know the gospel. We have the greatest message of all time to announce to the world. This week, I was, I was out at a restaurant, and, and it was just, you know, I small talk all the time with different people, and my appointment left, so I started talking to this particular guy, and as we're interacting, he started to ask me about the impeachment. What do you think of the impeachment? I said, you know, you know, the impeachment really doesn't affect me. He goes, seriously? He goes, well, like, what affects you? I said, the reality that all of time and space and everything is moving towards one point in which Jesus Christ is going to be declared for who he really is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he goes, wow. <laughs> Awkward way to open a convo, but hey. It's way better than talking about the stinking impeachment. Paul is just saying, it's not only who you are, but you get our message. We get to proclaim the truly good news to the world. The good news of Jesus. We get to leave our old identity. And again, not that we quit being Americans, but that we are Christians first. I think that's what Paul meant. If you look at verse 11 in chapter two, he says there's no partiality. God is a God who doesn't care what our background is. He's not worried about our old backgrounds. He's making something new that's defined by King Jesus. So what does this group look like? Who are they? Well, I want you to see something real quick. If you look in verse 11, he says the Jew first and also the Greek. He looks at you in verse 10 where it says the Jew first and also the Greek. He's repeating himself, isn't he? He's trying to tell us a little bit something about who we are. Well, he's saying who we are not. Those that are the ones that are part of Jesus' kingdom are not evil. And when we say evil, we don't mean just violating the law. We're saying that humanity was designed by God to make a name for him, to live for him, to be one of his. And humanity said, forget you, God. We're going to live for ourselves and make a name for ourselves. That is the audacity of sinfulness, and it is deep within all of us. There's another group of people, though, that look at this, that do good. Now, for the longest time, I was told, don't ever consider yourselves doing good. But the problem with that is this. Think about Ephesians 2.8. He says in there an amazing statement where he's talking about the fact that, that we cannot, there's no way, there's no works that we can do that will earn our salvation. We're not trying to say that. But by the time he gets to verse 10, he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. In other words, he's saying there's going to be an identity about this group of people. Their identity is not going to be the color of their skin. Their identity is not going to be their socioeconomic condition. Their identity is not going to be all those other things. They're going to have a mark about them. They're not going to do evil. They're going to make a name for God. They're going to do good. He goes on in verse 12, he says that there's this also within this, it doesn't matter if they have the law or they don't have the law, that that's not the marker of it, is there's gonna be a group of people, verse 13, that aren't just gonna be hearers of the law, but are gonna be what? 
doers. That's powerful. That somehow by believing in this message that Jesus truly is who he says he is, God intends to remake a group of people to be able to now be ones who do good, who now no longer are reliant upon the law in any kind of a way, but also this is the way that he's going to put it, that now they are ones that are still doers of the law. Those are the ones that God declares right. Does that take away justification by faith alone? Not at all. What that means is he's going to create a good group of people that don't come to faith through works, but they have a faith that works. He says, this is going to be the mark of my people. Not only that, he says, let me give you another mark. Look at verse 14. There's these Gentiles who do not have the law, who by nature, look at this, do what the law requires. They are a lot of themselves, even though they do not have the law. Let me come at this a little different. I'm not going to go into all the details, but a guy named Charles Cranfield was the first guy that put me onto this. He said, move the comma a little bit. Now watch this. For the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature, meaning they don't have the law, do what the law requires. They are a lot of themselves, even though they don't have the law. In other words, Gentiles are going to be empowered to actually do the law. What? The Jews would have been going, no, 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 no. Only Jews can do the law, to which Paul says, no, that's not the case. So how do they do the law? What does that mean? Well, Jesus had a discussion with a group of people where they came up to them and they said, basically boil down the law for us. And he said this, here's the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as your what? Yourself. Paul puts it this way in 13.8. Oh, nothing to anyone except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Isn't that crazy? Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. How are Gentiles gonna be able to fulfill the law? Something inside of them is gonna stir them to be able to love. But what is the thing inside of them that's gonna be stirred to be able to love? See, this is one of the, the grand questions that songs ask about and poems ask about. Everybody's asking, what is love? You know what I mean? That's just the question that's out there. Where does this love come from? Watch what Paul says. They show that the work of the law is written where? On their hearts. He says they're not identified by the race in which they come from. They're not identified by their language group. They're not identified by their gender. They're not identified by their sexual preference. They're not identified in all these different ways. How are they identified? They're identified by a changed heart. That's huge. That's the promise of everything in the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, he promised this, that I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. You will know who my people are, not by the external realities, but something that happens deep inside of them. Ezekiel said it this way, I'm gonna give them a new heart, a new spirit. I will put within you. I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. What is the mark of God's people? We have changed hearts. We're different. That's why Paul wrote, if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Why, Paul? Because he who is uncircumcised and keeps the law will condemn you who have written, excuse me, verse 28, for no one is a Jew who merely is one outwardly, nor is circumcision an outward and physical, watch this, but a Jew is one what? 
inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Paul says, you want to know what marks my people? Changed hearts. So what does that mean for us? This is how Paul saw things. He saw two groups of people, those that had the right at heart, that lived by the law of faith, that have transformation happening inside of their lives, and the unrighted heart, or the law of works, which just conforms to the old cultural way of doing things. Now, why speak of all these things? The reason that I really wanted to preach the book of Romans is because I think we're entering into a time that is going to be unlike any other time we have faced as the church. I think right now there is a battle for the hearts and the minds of people. I think people are disgusted with what's going on. I think Republicans aren't happy and Democrats and independents aren't happy. I think males and females can't stand the world that we're growing up in and living in. I think everything about this world, the world is looking at and saying, this can't be it. There must be something different. And we now have the message the world is dying for. For those of you that are in here that are high school, middle school, just listen to me for just a second. I feel like as a shepherd, I need to ask you forgiveness because we sometimes get ourselves so caught up in things that don't matter. What really matters is the transformation of people through the power of the gospel and then calling people to be disciples, to follow Jesus with all their heart, their mind, their soul, and their strength. And yet sometimes we get caught up in the silliest, dumbest things like music and instruments and whether or not a bulletin's a certain way or whatever it might be. We gotta get rid of the stupid. I think this is what Paul's telling the Jews and the Greeks. Get rid of the stupid. Don't make it about being Jewish. Don't make it about being Greek. Make it about the King, Jesus. Keep him at the forefront of who you are. As a parent, I've been praying over my kids for the longest time. I've been praying that God would transform them. Three or four nights ago as I was praying over my kiddos, God was saying, what about you? Maybe I want to show myself off through you, Daddy Todd. Maybe the thing that your kids are craving more than anything is not one more Bible verse that you read with them or memorize. Maybe what they're wanting to see is this Bible thing is really true, that Jesus, when he says he's king, is transforming lives. Maybe, Todd, I want to do a work in you so that your children can see your life and bring glory to God the Father in heaven. I think this is really what we're talking about. Is Cornerstone going to be about things that don't matter? Or is Cornerstone going to be about King Jesus? And with me being shepherd here, and I'm speaking on behalf of the elders and the pastors, it is time to begin to eliminate all the frivolous and return Jesus like he has been at Cornerstone for over 25 years to his rightful place as the king, not only of Cornerstone, but of the world. I think he's calling us in our, even our own lives to get rid of the things that don't matter. I think he's calling us to trust in him like we never have. I think he's calling us then in this trust of him, in this surrender to him, in this allegiance to him, to learn that as we do that, things don't get worse. Actually, we find a joy, a joy inexpressible like we've never known. I think in Cornerstone, what God has done is amazing. But I honestly believe God wants to do more. 
And I think you know that, don't you? I think you want to have joy, joy inexpressible, but I would say this, in order for it to happen, King Jesus needs to be in his rightful place, in our church, in our homes, and everywhere we go. And all God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you all.